46. Ides a silver watch. Sound and true as the owner, and the very prototype of his bulk and serenity, was a gold snuff box, a large and handsome one, which he did not esteem for its intrinsic weight, he had a lusty pride in showing that it was a prize gained in some skillful agricultural contest. I am sorry at not recollecting what was engraven on it, but being a thorough copney, and knowing nothing more of the plow and harrow than that I have somewhere observed it as a tavern sign, must plead for my ignorance in out-o-town matters. You can remember, no doubt, the day the Queen went to dine with the city nabobs at Guildhall. Cheeseman hurried impatiently to London for the sole purpose of seeing the sight and upon finding my liking for the spectacle as powerful as his own, declared I was the only sensible child my mother ever had, and adding that as he was well able to push his way through a London crowd, if my father and mother were willing, under his protection I should see this grand affair, not the slightest objection was put in opposition to my uncle's proposal, consequently the next day, November the 9th, 1837, Uncle Cheeseman and I formed integral portions of the huge mass of spectators which reached from Street James's to the city. After slipping off the pavement a score of times and in some instances opportunely enough to be shoulder grazed by a passing coach wheel, stunning numberless persons by explosions of oaths for clumsy collisions and inintentional performances upon his tenderest corn, we reached the corner of Street Paul's churchyard, having secured by a two-shilling bargain about three feet of a form, which, I suppose, Upon any other day than a general holiday like the present was the locus in quo for little dears whose young ideas were taught to shoot at threepence a week. Uncle took breath, and a pinch of snuff together, he smiled as I observed, that he'd be sure to take a refresher when Her Majesty passed and though he shook his head and designated me a sly young rogue, I could clearly perceive that he was plotting to perform, as if by chance, what I had predicated as a certainty and although nineteen persons out of twenty would have marked in this instance his puerility, I doubt not but that the same number are at some periods of their existence innocent victims to the like weakness, whether it be generated in a snuff-box or a royal diploma. By and by, a murmur from the distance, which succeeded a restless motion among the crowd like a leafy agitation of trees coming as a kind of courier and avant to announce the regular hurricane, broke gradually, and at last uproariously upon us, straining our necks and eyes in the attractive direction. Uncle grasped me by the arm, and though he spoke not a word, he fairly stared. Here it comes. Now the thick tide of the moving portion of the spectators began to sweep past us. As they hedged in the soldiery and carriages, then came the shouting, accompanied by various kinds of squeezing, tearing, and stumbling, some screaming compliments to Her Majesty, and in the same breath dispensing more violent compliments in an opposite direction and of a decidedly different tendency, shoes were trodden off, and bonnets crushed out of all fashion, coats were curtailed, samples of their quality were either seen dangling at the heels of the wearer, or were ignominiously trodden underfoot, and many superfine Saxony trousers were double-milled without mercy, whilst we were pluming ourselves upon the snugness of our situations, and the attendant good fortune of being easy partners in the business of the day and thus freed from the vexations and perplexities so largely distributed in our view, I was hindered from communicating my happiness upon these points, for at this moment down went my uncle Cheeseman, and as suddenly up flew his arms above his head, like Bosun Smith at the height of exhortation on Tower Hill, I was surprised, and so appeared my unfortunate relation, who supranted an additional mixture of indignation as I caught a glimpse or two of his chameleon-like visage, 
for at the first sight I could have most honestly sworn it to have been white at the second as crimson as the sudden consciousness of helpless injury could make it. Nevertheless, he sailed away from me in this extraordinary attitude for a short distance, when suddenly, as he lowered his arms, I observed sundry hands descend quickly, and, as I thought, kindly, lest he should lose his hat, upon the crown of it, until it encased more of his head than could be deemed either fashionable or comfortable. Presently, however, he was again seen viciously elbowing and riding his way back to me, which after immense exertions he performed, in the full receipt of numerous anathemas and jocular insults, as he neared me. I inquired what he had been doing, why he had left me for such a short, difficult, and unprofitable journey which queries, innocently playful as they were, appeared to produce a choking sensation, accompanied by a full-length stare at me, but his naturally kind heart was not kept long closed against me, and I gleaned the melancholy fact from his indignation, which was continually emitted in such short gusts as, the villains, the scoundrels, and done so suddenly, the only thing I prized, well, this is a lesson for me. As we returned home, Uncle displayed a wish to thrust himself everywhere into the densest mass, there was a morbid carelessness in his manner that he had hitherto never shown, he was evidently another man, a fallen creature, his pride, his existence, the very theme of all his joys, his gold snuff box, had departed forever, and his heart was in that box, what would Mrs. Cheeseman say? He had been cleaned out to the very letter I that letter it perhaps contained matters of moment, I have since that affair upon several occasions heard the poor fellow declare that much as he was heartbroken at the loss of his box, his feelings were lacerated to a greater degree when, in a curtain lecture, my stayed, correct, frosty heart, jewel hugging and said, cheeseman, it was a judgment for such conduct to a life, in that letter, which you treated with such contumely, I strictly cautioned you not to take that valuable box about with you, if your madness for sightseeing should lead you into a mob, let this be a warning to you, and be sure that the woman be the weaker vessel. She is oftentimes the deepest. We believe it. The pensive Peel. It is an unfounded calumny of the enemies of Sir Robert Peel to say that he has gone into the country to amuse himself shooting, feasting, eating, and drinking while the people are starving in the streets and highways. We know that the heart of the compassionate old rat bleeds for the distresses of the nation and that he is at this moment living upon bread and water, and studying Lord John Russell's hints on the corn laws, in domestic economy, said Stiggins to his wife one day, we've nothing left to eat, if things go on in this queer way, we shan't make both ends meet, the dame replied, in words discreet, we're not so badly fed, if we can make but one end meet, and make the other bread, nigger peculiarities. Perhaps no race of people on the face of the habitable globe are so strongly imbued with individual peculiarities as the free and slave Negro population of the United States, out herotting herot in their monstrous attempts of imitating and exceeding the fashions of the whites. The emulative darkies may be seen on Sundays occupying the whole extent of the Broadway pavement, dressed in fashions carried to the very sublime of the ridiculous, whatever is the order of the day, the highest ton among the whites is instantly adopted with the most ludicrous exaggeration, by the blacks, if small brims be worn by the bows of the former, they degenerate to nothing on the skulls of the latter, if with be the order of the day, the colored gentlemen rush out in immeasurable umbrellas of felt, straw, and gossamer, a long-tailed white island in comparison, but a docked black, should muslin trip from a carriage, tucked or flounced to the knee, the same material, sported by a sable bell, 
will take its next Sunday out furby load from hip to heel. Parasols are parachutes, sandals, black bandages, large bonnets, straw sheds, and small ones, non-entities. So it is with colors, green becomes more green, blue more blue, orange more orange, and crimson more flaming. When sported by these abound slaves of deep-rooted vanity, the spirit of imitation manifests itself in all their actions, hence it is by no means an uncommon occurrence to see a tall, round-shouldered, woolly-headed, buckshinned, and inky-complexioned, free nigger, sauntering out on Sunday, shading his huge weatherproof face from the rays of the encroaching sun under a carefully carried silk umbrella, and again, as in many of the places of worship the whole congregation cannot be accommodated with seats. Many of the members supply their own, so these sable gentry may be frequently seen progressing to church with a small school under their arms, and in one instance, rather than be disappointed, or obliged to stand, a solemn-looking specimen of the species actually provided himself with a strong brick bat, and having carefully covered it with his many and bright-colored bandana, preserved his gravity, and, still more strange, his balance, with an irresistible degree of mirth-creating composure. Their laziness and inequivocal antipathy to a work is as true as proverbial. We know an instance of it in which the master ordered his sable help to carry a small box from the steam pier to the Astor House Hotel, where his newly married wife, an English lady, was waiting for it, judge of her surprise to see the dark gentleman arrive followed by an Irish lad bearing the freight intended for himself. Dar, said the domineering conductor, Dar, Dad will do, put D.A. box down Dar, now. Miss Eyes, look here, just give Dad Chap a shilling, a shilling, what for, cause he bring up dar plunder from the bay, why didn't you bring it yourself, look here, somehow I rather guess I should haul that dar box fall and smash it into contents, so I just give Dad white trash to job just to let the poor critter earn a shilling, remonstrance was vain, so the money was paid, the lady declaring, for the future, should he think proper to employ a deputy, it must be at his own expense. The above term, white trash, is the one commonly employed to express their supreme contempt for the low Irish vulgar set. Their dissensions among themselves are irresistibly comic, threatening each other in the most outrageous manner, pouring out invectives, anathemas, and denunciations of the most deadly nature, but nine times in ten letting the strife end without a blow, affording in their quarrels an apt illustration of a tale full of sound and fury, told by an idiot, signifying nothing, suppose an affront fancied or real, put by one on another, the common commencement of ireful expostulations generally runs as follows, look here, you dm black nigger, what you do dad for, sar, who you call black, sar, dm as white as you, sar, any day, sar, you nigger, sar, look here again, don't you call me a nigger, sar, now, don't you do it, why not, never mind, I've told you on it, so don't you go to do it no more, you mighty low black, cause if you do put my dander up, and make me razy, I rather guess I'll smash in your nigger's head, like a bust-up eggshell, it's a ring-tailed roarer, I tell you, reckon I'm a potomus, don't you go to put my steam up, dd if don't bust and scald you out, I'm nothing but a snorter a pretty considerable tarnation long team, and a couple of horses to spare, so just be quiet, I tell you, or I'll use you up in common sharp, you use me up, you, you, D.M., you and your wife and some nigger children, all of you, was sold for a hundred and fifty dollars less than this nigger, look here, 
Don't you say that again, don't you do it, I tell you. Don't you do it. Or I'll just give you such an almighty everlasting shaking, that you shall pray for a cold ague as a holiday. I'm worth considerable more dollars than sick a low black man as you is worth sense. Why, didn't they offer to give you away? Only you such damn trash no one would take you. So at last you was knocked down to a blind man. What dad? Here, stand clear dar behind, and get out of the way in front. I'm just going to take a run and put dad nigger out of the state. Let me go. Do you hear? Golly, if you hadn't held me he'd have been wary small pieces by these time. DM I'll break him up. You, you, your low buckshins never carry your black head fast enough to catch these elegant nigger. You just run, you'll find I'm nothing but an alligator. You have no more chance than a black slug under the wheels of a plunder train carriage. You is unnoticeable by these gentlemen. Dar dat good, gentlemen. Golly, dat good. Look here, don't you never speak to me no more. And look here, nigger, don't you never speak to me. See you dn fest, black man. See you scorched fest, nigger. Good day, trash. Good morning, dirt. So generally ends the quarrel, but about half an hour afterwards the trash and dirt will generally be found lauding each other to the skies, and cementing a new six hours friendship over some brandy punch or a mint julep. Songs of the city, Mumber V.I., you bid me rove, Mary, in the shady grove, Mary, with you to the close of even, but I can't, my dear, for I must, I swear, be off at a quarter to seven, nay, do not start, Mary, nor let your heart. Mary, be disturbed in its innocent purity, I'm sure that you wouldn't have me do my friend my mail my security, that tearful eye, Mary, seems to ask me why, Mary, I can wait till sunset on sea, ah, turn not away, I am out for the day on a fleet and fleeting pony, your wide open mouth, Mary, with its breath like the south, Mary, seems to ask for an explanation, well, bone out of the schools, I live within rules, and am subject to observation, but come to my arms, Mary, let no dread alarms, Mary, in our present happiness corpus, I've not the least doubt of soon getting out, by a writ of habeas corpus, away with despair, Mary, let us cast in the air, Mary, his dark and gloomy fetters, why should we be racked, when we think of the act for relieving insolvent debtors, a mare's nest, our friend the Sir Peter Laureate wishes to know whether the work upon oral surgery is not a new invented description of almanac, as it is announced as she, year, printer's devil, the physiology of the London medical student, five, of his maturity, and Latin examination, the second season arrives, and our pupil becomes a medical student in the fullest sense of the word, he has an indistinct recollection that there are such things as wards in the hospital as well as in a key or the city and a vague wandering, like the morning's impression of the dreams of the preceding night, that in the remote dark ages of his career he took some notes upon the various lectures, the which have long since been converted into pipe lights or small darts, which, twisted up and propelled from between the forefingers of each hand, fly with an erring aim across the theater at the lecturer's head, the slumbering student, or any other object worth aiming at an amusing way of beguiling the hour's lecture, and only excelled by the sport produced. If he has the good luck to sit in a sunbeam, from making a tournament of jack-o'-lanterns on the ceiling, his locker in the lobby of the dissecting room has long since been devoid of apron, sleeves, scalpels, or forceps, but still it is not empty. Its contents are composed of three bell-pull handles, 
a valuable series of shutter fastenings, two or three broken pipes, a pewter go, which, if everybody had their own, would in all probability belong to Mr. Evans, of Covent Garden Piazza, some scraps of biscuit, and a round knocker, which forcibly recalls a pleasant evening he once spent, with the accompanying anecdotes of how he built the pike at Waterloo Bridge, and Porter Jones got jugged by mistake. It must not, however, be supposed that the student now neglects visiting the dissecting room. On the contrary, he is unremitting in his attendance, and sometimes the first there of the morning, more especially when he has, to use his own expression, been going it rather fast than otherwise the evening before and comes to the school very early in the morning to have a good wash and refresh himself previously to snatching a little of the slumber he has forgotten to take during the night, which he enjoys very quietly in the injecting room downstairs, amidst a heterogeneous assemblage of pipkins, subjects, deal coffins, sawdust, inflated stomachs, syringes, macerating tubs, and dried preparations. The dissecting room is also his favorite resort for refreshment and he broils sprats and red herrings on the fire shovel with consummate skill, amusing himself during the process of his culinary arrangements by sawing the corners off the stone mantelpiece, throwing cinders at the new man, or seeing how long it takes to bore a hole through one of the stools with a red-hot poker. Indeed, these luckless pieces of furniture are always marked out by the student as the fittest objects on which to wreak his destructive propensities and he generally discovers that the readiest way to do them up is to hop steeplechases upon them from one end of the room to the other a sporting amusement which shakes them to pieces, and irremediably dislocates all their articulations, sooner than anything else. Of course these pleasantries are only carried on in the absence of the demonstrator. Should he be present, the industry of the student is confined to poking the fire in the stove and then shutting the flue, or keeping down the ball of the cistern by some abdominal hooks, and then, before the invasion of smoke and water takes place, quietly joining a knot of new men who are strenuously endeavoring to dissect the brain and discover the hippocampus major, which they expect to find in the perfect similitude of a seahorse, like the web-foot quadrupeds who paw the reality in the area usually devoted to illusion, or tank, at the Adelphi Theater, if one of the professors of his medical school chances to be addicted to making anti-Martin experiments on animals, or the study of comparative anatomy, the pursuits offer an endless fund of amusement to the Joko student. He administers poison to the toxicological guinea pigs, hence the rabbit kept for galvanism about the school, lets loose in the theater. By accident, the sparrows preserved to show the rapidly fatal action of choke damp upon life, turns the bladders, which have been provided to tie over bottles, into footballs, and makes daily contributions to the plate of pebbles taken from the stomach of the ostrich and preserved in the museum to show the mode in which these birds assist digestion, until he quadruples the quantity, and has the quiet satisfaction of seeing exhibited at lecture, as the identical objects, the heap of small stones which he has collected from time to time in the garden of the school, or from any excavation for pipes or paving which he may have passed in his route from his lodgings, the second or middle course of the three winter sessions which the medical student is compelled to go through is the one in which he most enjoys himself, and indulges in those little outbreaks of eccentric mirth which eminently qualify him for his future professional career. During the first course he studies from novelty during the last from compulsion, but the middle one passes in unlimited sprees and perpetual half and half. The only grand project he now undertakes is going up for his lad, provided he had not courage to do so upon first coming to a London. 
for some weeks before this period he is never seen without an interlined edition of Celsus and Gregory, not that he debars himself from joviality during the time of his preparation, but he judiciously combines study with amusement never stirring without his translation in his pocket, and even, if he goes to the theatre, beguiling the time between the pieces by learning the literal order of a new paragraph. Every school possesses circulating copies of these works, they have been originally purchased in some wild moment of industrious extravagance by a new man, and when he passed, he sold them for five shillings to another, who, in turn, disposed of them to a third, until they had run nearly all through the school. The student grinds away at these until he knows them almost by heart, albeit his translation is not the most elegant. He reads, Sonus Homo, a sound man, qui, who, et, also, Benny Ballot, well is in health, et, and, sui spontis, of his own choice, established island, and see, this, however, is quite sufficient, and, accordingly, one afternoon, in a rash moment, he makes up his mind to, go up, arrived at Apothecary's Hall a building which he regards with a feeling of awe far beyond the Bow Street Police Office he takes his place amongst the anxious throng, and is at last called into a room where two examiners politely request that he will favor them by sitting down at a table adorned with severe-looking inkstands, long pens, formal sheets of fool's cap, and awfully sized copies of the light entertaining works mentioned above. One of the aforesaid examiners then takes a pinch of snuff, coughs, blows his nose, points out a paragraph for the student to translate, and leaves him to do it. He has, with a prudent forethought, stuffed his cribs inside his double-breast waistcoat, Unfortunately, he finds he cannot use them, so when he sticks at a queer word he writes it on his blotting paper and shoves it quietly on to the next man. If his neighbor is a brute, he returns an answer, but if he is not, our friend is compelled to take shots of the meaning and trust to chance a good plan when you are not certain what to do, either at billiards or apothecary's hall, should he be fortunate enough to get through. His schedule is endorsed with some hieroglyphics explanatory of the auspicious event, and, in gratitude, he asks a few friends to his lodgings that night, who have legions of sausages for supper, and drink gin and water until three o'clock in the morning. It is not, however, absolutely necessary that a man should go up himself to pass his land. We knew a student once who, by a little judicious change of appearance first letting his hair grow very long, and then cutting it quite short at one time patronizing whiskers, and at another shaving himself perfectly clean now wearing spectacles and now speaking through his nose being, with all, an excellent scholar, passed a Latin examination for half the men in the hospital he belonged to, receiving from them, when he had succeeded, the fee which, in most cases, they would have paid a private teacher for preparing them, the medical student does not like dining alone, he is gregarious, and attaches himself to some dining rooms in the vicinity of his school, where, in addition to the usual journals, they take in the Lancet and Medical Gazette for his express reading. He is here the customer most looked up to by the proprietor, and is also on excellent terms with Harriet, who confidentially tells him that the boiled beef is just up, indeed. He has been seen now and then to put his arm round her waist and ask her when she meant to marry him, which question Harriet is not very well prepared to answer, as all the second season men have proposed to her successively, and each stands equally well in her estimation which is kept up at the rate of a penny per diem, but Harriet is not the only waiting domestic with whom he is upon friendly terms, the Toms, Charleses, and Henrys of the supper taverns enjoy equal familiarity, 
and when Nancy, that night's, brings him oysters for two and asks him for the money to get the stout, he throws down the shilling with an expression of endearment that plainly intimates he does not mean to take back the fourpence change out of the pot, should he, however, in the course of his wanderings, go into a strange eating house, where he is not known, and consequently is not paid becoming attention, his revenge is called into play, and he gratifies it by the simple act of pouring the vinegar into the pepper caster, and emptying the contents of the salt cellar into the water bottle before he gets up to walk away. Express from America, we are authorities to state there is a man in New Orleans so exceedingly bright, that he uses the palm of his hand for a looking glass. Politics of the outward man, wisdom is to be purchased only of the tailor. Morality is synonymous with millinery, whilst truth herself pictured by the poetry of the olden day in angelic nakedness must now be full-dressed, like a young lady at a royal drawing-room, to be considered presentable. You may believe that a man with a gash in his heart may still walk, talk, pay taxes, and perform all the other duties of a highly civilized citizen, but to believe that the same man with a hole in his coat can discourse like a reasoning animal is to be profoundly ignorant of those sympathetic subtleties existing between a man's brain and a man's broadcloth. Party politics have developed this profound truth the divine reason of the immortal creature escapes through ragged raiment, a fractured skull is not so fatal to the powers of ratiocination as a rent in the nether garments. God's image loses the divine luster of its origin with its snap of super-Saxony. The sinful lapse of Adam has thrown all his unfortunate children upon the mercies of the tailor, and that mortal shows least of the original stain who wraps about it the richest purple and the finest linen. Hence, if you would know the value of a man's heart, look at his waistcoat. Philosophers and anatomists have quarreled for centuries as to the residence of the soul. Some have vowed that it lived here some there, some that, like a gentleman with several writs in pursuit of him, it continually changed its lodgings, whilst others have lustily sworn that the soul was a vagrant, with no claim to any place of settlement whatever. Nevertheless, a vulgar notion has obtained that the soul dwelled on a little knob of the brain, and that there, like a vainglorious bantam cock on a dunghill, it now claps its wings and crows all sorts of triumph and now, silent and scratching, it thinks of naught but wheat and barley. The first step to knowledge is to confess to a late ignorance. We avow, then, our late benighted condition. We were of the number of sciolists who lodged the soul in the head of man, we are now convinced that the true dwelling place of the soul is in the head's antipodes. Let Solomon himself return to the earth, and hold forth at a political meeting, Solomon himself would be hooted, laughed at, voted an ass, an incomplete. If Solomon spoke from the platform with a hole in his breeches, Plato doubtless thought that he had imagined a magnificent theory, when he averred that every man had within him a spark of the divine flame. But, silly Plato, he never considered how easily this spark might be blown out, at this moment, how many Englishmen are walking about the land utterly extinguished, had men been made on the principle of the safety lamp, they might have defied the foul breath of the world's opinion but, alas, what a tender, thin-skinned, shivering thing is man, his covering the livery of original sin, bought with the pilfered apples is worn into a hole, and opinion, that sour breathed hag, claps her blue lips to the broken web, gives a puff, and out goes man's immortal spark, from this moment the creature is but a carcase, he can eat and drink when lucky enough to be able to try the experiment, talk, walk, and no more, yes, we forgot he can work, he still keeps precedence of the ape in the scale of creation for he can work for those who, thickly clothed, and buttoned to the throat, 
had no rent in their purple, no stitch dropped in their superfine, to expose their precious souls to an annihilating gust, and who therefore keep their immortal sparks like tapers in burglars' dark lanterns, whereby to rob and spoil with greater certainty. Gentle reader, think you this a fantastic chapter on holes? If so, then of a surety you do not read those instructive annals of your country penned by many a TACIDUs of the daily press by many a profound historian who unites to the lighter graces of stenography the enduring loveliness of philosophy. Some days since a meeting was held in the parish of St. Pancras of the Young Men's Anti-Monopoly Association. The place of gathering, says the reporter, was a ruined penny theater. It is evident in the brain of the writer that the small price at which the theater was ruined made its infamy, to be blighted for a penny was the shame. Drury Lane and Covent Garden have been ruined over and over again but then their ruin, like the H.R. Wyonies, has ever been at a large price of admission, hence, like court harlots, their ruin has been dignified by high remuneration. What, however, could be expected from a theater that, with inconceivable wickedness, suffered itself to be undone for a penny? Let the reporter answer, Forster, Esquire advanced, and, assuming a teapot position on the stage, moved the first resolution, to the effect that the bread tax was the cause of all distress, and that they should use their strenuous efforts to remove it. Ladies there was one old woman in a shocking bad black and white straw bonnet present and gentlemen said he, this is a public meeting to all intents and purposes, for ourselves we care not for an orator standing like a teapot. If what he pours out be something better than mere hot water or dead small beer, if, however, we were to typify orators in Delft, there are many Tory talkers whom we would associate with more ignominious shapes of crockery than that of a teapot senators who are taken by the handle, and by their party used for the dirtiest offices. We now come to the bad old woman whose excessive iniquity was blazoned in her bad black and white straw bonnet. This woman might have been an ASPASIA, a DSDAL. A Mrs. Somerville, nay, the S-Y-B-I-L-L-E-C-U-M-E-A herself, what of that, the bad bonnet must sink the large silly Grecian to a cinder wench, make the French women a traps from the Palais Royal, our fair astronomer a gypsy of Greenwich Park, and the fate foretelling Sidley crawled from the worst garret of Battle Bridge, the head eye.